So we're going to do something a little different today. We are going to stand while we read Nehemiah chapter 8. And uh, we don't normally do it. I don't think that the Bible demands that every time it's read that you stand. But there's something beautiful in our passage where the word of God is actually read and the people stand up and they stand up for a really long time. So we're going to do it. So stand up with me. Nehemiah chapter 8. <clears throat> And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord commanded Israel. And so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. And it was the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who can understand. And all the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this very purpose. And beside him stood, stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbatna, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, and lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Joshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, go your way now, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord, to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy, and do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And on the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, they came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. 
Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, and palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that very day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Amen. Please be seated. Let me pray for us. Our Father, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. That this is your word written by men that you have raised up and carried them along by your Holy Spirit. You use their minds, their experiences, their personalities, and their hands. You borrow them that you might write and make it secure and firm and leave these precious words to us for our good. We turn back to you, the author and finisher of our faith. We turn back to you, the one who has inspired this very word and acts your blessings upon its reading and its teaching and its obeying. I pray that you would do this for the glory and majesty of Jesus. Amen. So thank you for standing up. Um, I'll get to why that was important later in the message, but uh, I had the privilege of going away to go to college. So I graduated from Jim Hill, which is here in town and left two weeks later and went to school in Alabama. And um, it was always hard for me to come back home after leaving my parents' house to go to college. So I guess if you, if you go to college in the same town where you're from, this might not be a big deal, but for me it was. I was used to being five and a half hours away. I was used to living in my own room. I was used to cleaning my room when I felt like cleaning my room. I was used to getting up when I felt like getting up. I was used to coming in whenever I felt like coming in. And that all changed the moment I stepped back into my mom's house or my dad's house that it was different. And where I got into trouble was because I was trying to sort of bring this freedom, this way I used to live when I was away from home back into my parents' home. And they're like, no, you're, you're not going to do that. And so I can remember several nights where coming in when the sun is coming up um, and had a cousin get put in the back of a police car on Ferris Street, another friend who was put in jail that night got in, sun was coming up six o'clock in the morning and my mom knocks on my door about 6.30, you gotta go cut the grass. I was like, mom, I'm tired, no. She was like, look, I don't care what you're doing, you're gonna get up and abide by these rules. And so I got up and she says, after you finish cutting, I need you to go by your grandmother's house and pick up her Avon. <laughs> and then I need you to go drop off all of her Avon throughout the city of Jackson. And then I need you to pick up the money and bring it back to your grandmother's house. 
and I need you to stop by rallies on Northside Drive and pick her up a cheeseburger, right? And so here my mom is, is planning out my entire day, and I'm like, no, this doesn't work like that. I can do what I want to do, right? And the answer was no. As long as I'm in her house, I'm going to live by her rules. I can't bring how I lived out there into her house and think that I'm going to stay there. I mentioned that because God's people were taken away from God's city in 586, 587. And guess what? The passage that we just read, it's 444 BC. So we're talking 141 years later, Jerusalem was ransacked. They were deported to Babylon, some to Susa, and now God starts this sending them back. And Nehemiah talked about it last week. Even when they finished the wall, guess what was lacking in the city? Houses. God's people still had not moved back in. And so the rest of Nehemiah, it's this movement by God to get his people back into his city. But here's the thing. There's this clashing that's happening, right? That God has rules and he has standards. And either he's going to let them come into his house and live any kind of way or they're going to shape up and live according to God's rules. Here's the question. Who's going to give? Well, it's not God. Wrong answer. If you think God's going to bend and flex on his holiness, his character, if he's going to sweep our conduct under the rugs. And we already see that they had this reentry issue. We saw it when uh, when they came back initially, when they stopped building the temple and went into the wilderness and started building their own homes. Right. We saw it when Ezra comes and they have intermarried, not cross racially. He is not against cross racial marriages. They have married outside of the faith, right? When Nehemiah comes and, and they are content with the city just being in shambles, Nehemiah comes and what are you doing? When, when, when the famine comes in Nehemiah 5, when they're taxing each other and the rich are getting off over on the poor, Nehemiah's like, what are you doing? In other words, we're starting to see when you read this book that re-entry back into God's city was hard. And they were bringing all of these ways of life out there back into the city. And God is like, nope, you can't do that. Nope, that's not how we roll in my city. And here's the thing. In one day, and this one very day right here, change happens. One day, they bring 140 years of baggage and bad habits into the city, and in one encounter with the living God, something changes. That's the question that I want to put before you and I this morning. Do you believe that you can change? And do you believe that God can change you? And do you believe that God can take away all the baggage, all the shame, all the stuff that you and I have learned in the world? Do you think that he can take that away and remake you after the image of his son? And the answer is yes. That if we think that God only wants to save us from our sins and not deliver us from sin's power, we are missing a part of the gospel. God's work is not just to get you and I out of hell. He's going to get hell out of us. 
That's what he's after, making us look like Jesus. And so what I want to do this morning is sort of unpack this whole idea that we can be changed. I want to look at sort of this idea that it can happen. I want to look at the power to change, and I want to look at the fruit of change, right? What does it look like when we're changed? The first thing I want us to look at is just this, this ability, this, this desire to change, this, this real promise that God's people can be different. Now, I'm not sure if you realize it, and that's the first point, but if you go back and let me jog your memory again, you remember when they came and they were, the exiles were coming and they were rebuilding the temple and then they stopped and they went off into their own lands outside of Jerusalem and they started to build for themselves paneled houses. Remember that? And, and, and what did God do? God raised up Haggai and Zechariah. In Haggai chapter 1, you got to remember that was, that was happening right when Ezra was happening, right when Ezra, the earlier chapters of Ezra was happening. Those prophets came. When they stopped building, they went out here. God raised up prophets out here and says, wait a minute. Why do you live in paneled houses and this house over here is abandoned? Why are you out here toiling and trying to get money? Do you not know that your money is falling in a, it's going into a basket with holes in it? And so what God does, whenever they were out of line, God himself raised up somebody to hit him on the wrist, get back to what I told you to do. The same thing happened with Ezra. When Ezra came and they were intermarrying with people and not even teaching their own kids the Hebrew language, right? They, they were learning the language of the Ashdodites, right? They were learning the languages of the nations around them and did not even know their own language. It was Ezra who says, wait a minute, you're not supposed to do that, right? Nehemiah, same thing. When they were um, taxing each other during the famine in Nehemiah 5, it was Nehemiah who stepped up. And who took the initiative and said, no, you can't do this. This is not right. What I'm saying is this. All throughout those books, you're seeing this thing that any advancement in holiness is always coming when God raises up a leader to bring them into it. This is a turning point. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. Look at it. It's absolutely beautiful when you look at it in that context. Look at it. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses. It's real subtle. You see, this is not Ezra or Nehemiah coming down on them. This is God's people actually saying, Ezra, will you go get that book? Will you go get the book? Ezra is not slapping the book on them. It's the people in their shame and in their sin and in their alienation from the word of God who finally get enough of their filth. And they take the initiative to tell Ezra the priest, go get the book. We want to read from the book. That it reads as if something beautiful is happening here. There, there's a shift, right? That these people who were accustomed to living outside of God's city, outside of his gaze, without his word, it's as if they are fed up with living like that. Now, this is a divine work of the Lord. We know it is because in Leviticus 23, God, go read it in your own time. But that lays out a lot of the feasts that Israel were to keep. 
And if you notice, all of this happens on the seventh month on the first day. And that was the day that, that was custom for the Feast of Trumpets. That's when you would hear loud trumpets. You would stop your work. You would bring some of your crops into the land and you would celebrate. It would be the beginning of a new year. In other words, they're coming here thinking that it's about the trumpets and God is doing something by his spirit. They don't want to hear trumpets. They want to hear the word now. God's doing that through the feast and through them coming in right here. God seizes that moment and all of a sudden they want to hear the word. They're tired of their filth. Look, I don't know if you, you're potty training and you, you might can relate to this, right? There are a bunch of different ways to teach kids not to mess in their pants, right? You can put an iPad in front of the, in front of the toilet. You can give them money and candy and treat them. You know what I mean? Like you can do all this kind of stuff. You can promise them everything. But you know that ultimately you're the one initiating the potty training. And ask any parent. There comes a day when they're tired of filth. They don't want saggy diapers that's keeping them from running. They don't like their stuff like all over them. It becomes, a, you know what I mean? It just becomes awful. They want to wear big boy underwear and big girl underwear, right? And that's when the lights go off. They're, tra they're potty trained right there. That day that they want to be clean. That day that they don't want to be filthy. That's what's happening in the text. Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, they're like parents potty training Israel. And on this day, Israel says, enough. We want to know our God. We want to hear from our God. I say that to you because that is the impetus for change. It is twofold when you are sick and tired of being sick and tired, when you're sick of being filthy, when you're sick of seeing the way that sin affects your heart and your soul and your marriage and your devotional life, that, that it is a sickness, it is a conviction that is deep and real, and it is a picture of what cleanness looks like, what glory looks like. That's what's happening in the passage. They have been starving for God's word and finally they see that they have been chasing meaning and other things and they say, okay, no more. No more. Give me the word. And so I say, we can't enjoy the sweetness of the gospel until we taste the bitterness of sin. That change, real lasting gospel change that I think we see in the text, it begins right here. They want it. And you know what? God is so good. He says, I'll give it to you. The second thing we see is the power to change. That you get this idea that they can, they are. But where's the power? What this passage does is it exalts the role that the word of God plays in transforming God's people. The word of God comes to their rescue. It's one thing to desire change, but desiring it isn't good enough. Your desires, my desires, they are not strong enough to make us 
change, that there has to be some outside source in the same way that you and I cannot save ourselves. Though we want to be saved, our wanting to be saved does not save us. We need a power, a person outside of us to intervene and rescue. If we give ourselves too much credit for our own change, we are undermining the way the gospel works. The gospel begins when we come to the ends of ourselves. And that's what's happening. So this desire to want to be different, that's really good, but that's not all there is. And what does God do? God meets their desire with the word, with the very word of God. Now, look at the passage. 15 times in 18 verses, the word of God is used or the commandment of the Lord or the law of Moses. 15 times. Look at verse one. Ezra brings out the book of the law of Moses. Look at verse 2. Ezra brought the law before the assembly. Look at verse 3. Ezra read it, and the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. Look at verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. Look at verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God. Look at verse 14. They studied the words of the law. Do you see that the focus of this passage is the word of God and the role it plays in changing and transforming God's people? Now, when I say that the word does this, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying the Holy Spirit isn't at work. I'm not putting the Holy Spirit sort of over here in a corner and saying the way that you will grow Christian is just by this. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the Holy Spirit is in all of this and that, that he is taking what he's written and applying it and pressing it in on our hearts. But this passage speaks about the word. I'm also not saying that Suffering is not a, a tool that God uses to change you. That I'm not saying that when God strips you and I of worldly comforts, that he doesn't use that to change us, to make us desire him more. He does. And I'm not saying that the, the, the community of believers, being in community with believers in hard times, how it transforms us. If you were at Sadie Margaret's funeral, and have been hearing the testimony of the Pickett family for the past 16 months, then you know that the corporate body of Christ is powerful to change us. It is absolutely powerful. I'm not denying any of that. Those are also means that God uses to change us. But this passage right here is about the word. That's why our call to worship was the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. You hear that? The reviving of your soul is right here. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise, making wise the simple. You're a baby in the faith and you want to grow up. You go right here. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens our eyes that are blinded and, and we believe the lie that you want to have clear eyes. It says the word of the Lord will clear them up. By your word, your servant is warned and in keeping them, there is great reward. It's what Peter talks about in first Peter, what Anthony also read, that God's divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness 
through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises so that through them we may become the partakers of the divine nature. In other words, when you look at God's economy, our transformation cannot and will not happen outside of his revelation. It cannot. It will not happen. He has made the Bible, the very word of God, a means, a primary means by which we grow and we are changed. Now, there's a slippery slope, right? Because in our circles, we're Presbyterian, and we tend to know a lot about the Bible. And we tend to know a lot about theology. And so it might seem that God is saying, just go learn some theology. Just go read through your Bible five times a year and you'll be fine. Jesus's harshest words were to Pharisees. And he says, you think that by searching the scriptures that you have eternal life. You don't have them unless they're pointing to me. In other words, it's not just let's read this. It is this has to be read on its own terms. And that's the trick. That the Pharisees went down this slippery slope of, of knowledge, of knowledge, of knowledge, of word, of word. And Jesus says, you don't know me. But there is a way, there is a way to come back to that, to read this with the right way, with the right heart. And God says, baby, I promise you, you spend time right here with me, it will change you. Well, how? The how is so important. And I think what we see in this text is the how to read the word, which is powerful to change, is only availed to us when it is read with humility. Now, how do you see humility in the text? You see it in verse three. Now, think about the image. And all the people gathered as one man into the square, and all the people told Ezra to bring out the book. And so Ezra brought out the book. And so look at verse three, right? Look at verse three. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from the early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and of those who can understand. And, all, and the ears of all the people were attentive to Ezra. Is that what your Bible says? What does your Bible say on that last sentence? Were they attentive to Ezra? You see, right there, it's real slippery. We kind of read it and, and we miss that. This is like utter humility. They're not even there to hear from a man. God's going to use this man's voice, but it is God speaking through the book of the law. What a powerful pa passage for pastors and preachers and teachers that when we stand before God's people, they need less of us. That their focus and gaze is not right here. The focus and gaze is right here. And that's why Ezra opens the book in their presence. He goes and gets the book of the law written by God through Moses. And when they're listening to Moses, I mean to Ezra, they're not listening to a man. They're paying attention to their God. You see this humility. A man cannot possibly have the words of life apart from the life of giving words of this book right here. 
that you see it in the work of their hands in verses four through five. The, the, the last time we were together, they finished the wall and it speaks clearly that the people finished the wall, but the wall was not the last thing they built. Did you catch that? They finished the wall. But look at it. Look at verse four. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for this very purpose. You see that? Who is the they? It's the same people out there listening to him read the scriptures that when they made the wall, their building continued and they made a platform. This platform was so big that Ezra had 13 of his homies on it with him, right? And so that's what you see right there when you read verses, look at verse four, and beside him stood, I'm not gonna read all these words again, Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, it's 13, six on his left and seven on his right. It might be seven on his right, six on his left. But he gets up there and on this big platform with 13 people to read with him. Now, why would, why, would, why would he need to get on a platform with 13 people? Because here's the thing. You and I know that technological advances, they make things more compact and portable. If you go back and look at some of the LL Cool J videos, and he got the big, the big, big uh, stereo on his, you know, on his shoulder walking down the street. That was the boom box, right? You remember the old bag phones, the old cell phones? Not, not the ones that can fit like right here, but like the big ones like my grandmama used to have that had a bag and I mean, you remember the old house phones, right? But you know, right, when technology advances, things get smaller. We had TVs that were like this wide and two tons, right? Floor models. And now you can, my son can carry a flat screen. Here's the thing, in Ezra's day, they did not have a Bible like we have it. There were scrolls. Matter of fact, the Isaiah, which was one of the books found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, that it was 17 sheets long, 24 feet long, and one foot high. So one foot high, 24 feet long, and that was how you read Isaiah. And everybody did not have a copy. There's a reason they tell Ezra to go and get the book because you couldn't just find Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy in your pocket. The printing press was not invented until the 1400s AD. This is 444 BC, 1800 years later, we could start mass producing Bibles. Here's what this means. This means that when they build this platform and they need 13 men plus Ezra, they're up there unrolling scrolls and they're sitting there right there in front of all the people reading through the first five books of the Bible. And they built it. We, we want to build this so that you can stand up. And in the passage, it reads as if Ezra was over the people. They didn't just build this in the sense that you can stretch it out. They, they were communicating through what they built. We want your word to be exalted. In the same way that you can ride through Jackson right now, don't look at the streets. They are horrible. Look at the skyline and you're going to see steeples, 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 steeples. Why? Because architecture is communicating glory. We're pointing 
upward. Elevation, elevating the word of God, it is to convey an authoritative role that the word of God plays over us. And you see this with what they do with their hands. We want the word exalted. We want this space big enough and we want you to be able to get all of your dudes up here and read to us. You see humility in the way. I mean, look at this, like, right? Look at verse three. And all the ears of the people were attentive to the book. For how long? From early morning until midday. All the people were attentive. We're talking like six or seven hours of just letting this guy read and read and read and read and read. If that's true, then I got... I got about six, six more hours, right? We can sit here all day, right? We're going to do what Ezra did. No, I, I know we got to get out. <laughs> but you see the point? They stayed there from the, the sun came up through midday, letting them read. There was nothing else that they would rather do. No place they would rather be than right there under the reading. We're not even talking about preaching. We're not talking about eloquence and application. We're talking about boring reading through genealogies and names and chapters. And they stayed there all day long. And then after they sat there for six to seven hours, then Ezra sends the next wave of 13 dudes. And so turn over to uh, Ezra chapter eight, go over to uh, verse seven. Look, it's beautiful, right? And Joshua and Bonnie and Sherebiah and Jamin and Akub and Shabbatiah and Hodiah, all those names, they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Look at verse 8. And they read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. Most of your Bibles might have a number two. You go down to the bottom. What does that two mean? We don't really know. It could mean that they read with interpretation or they read paragraph by paragraph. That's what my Bible says. But the, everything they did, they did it so that the people could understand. Now think about the image. They listened to Ezra read for six to seven hours. And another 13 people come out to the ground and start to go paragraph by paragraph. You've heard the big picture. Now let me make you aware of the meaning behind it all. That's a lot of humility to sit there when I got something in the oven, right? When I got a game that's coming on, when somebody about to draft, when my mind is thinking about what the stock market did on Friday. I mean, I can think of a hundred things that goes through my mind on a Sunday. Like, man, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? And what you, the, the sense that you get in this text, I just want to hear the word. I want somebody to explain the word. That's utter humility. There is no place I would rather be, no voice I would rather hear, no words I would rather know than what's happening right here and right now in this sacred space. Charles Spurgeon said, if you and I would empty ourselves, depend on it, God will fill us. Divine grace seeks out and fills only a vacuum. Make a vacuum by humility and God will fill that vacuum with his love. I think sometimes the greatest barrier to our change is not how hard the Bible is. It's how hard our hearts are. We don't believe that there are no words of life outside of it. 
We believe that if we can read what someone else says about the word, as opposed to going to the word itself, that we can get wise that way. That we, we believe that there are these, these self-help books out there that can give us good and give us wisdom. And the scriptures keep saying over and over and over and over and over again, come back here, drink from me. And I'm not undermining the role of people who write and write commentaries. You see it right here. They hear the word and then God raises up people to explain it. But that whole posture, that posture of your word is important. It is a priority. You speak to me through it that the, the king of heaven is making himself known and what he's up to known that it takes a lot of humility to read this Bible and not have the TV on, to lose a few minutes of sleep, to spend time with our Savior. I think we're too wise at times. We're too prideful. And we're doing exactly what the Galatians did. Paul says, you've been saved by the Spirit and by grace and by faith. And now are you trying to grow up through the works of the flesh? In the same way, the good news of the gospel came to us from this book right here. And what Nehemiah is showing us that this is how we continue down the path of gospel change and gospel hope. It's not by shoving this aside and closing it. It's by leaving it open and having this be an integral part of our lives. What's the evidence of change? Because you see it, I think you see the people change. It's soft hearts and hard resolve to obey. Now, how do I, how do, where am I getting this soft hearts from it? Look at this whole idea, right? In verses 9 through 12, ne Nehemiah, Ezra, Levites, after reading and explaining, they told the people that this day is holy. To the Lord your God, do not mourn or weep. Now, why? For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Think about the scene. They're reading and reading and reading. And all of a sudden, tears start to fall. Tears from everybody's face. They weren't crying like this before. That all of a sudden conviction and grief and sorrow is happening just in the reading and, and teaching of the law that God's people are starting to cry. And then look at what else happens. Ezra and Nehemiah, they actually have to say, do not weep. Look at verse 9. Do not be grieved, verse 10. Do not be grieved. Be quiet and stop crying, verse 11. You see what's happening? Look at verse 12. Go your way and eat the fat and drink the wine. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Look at verse 12. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and made great rejoicing because they understood the law declared to them. Look at verse 17. And there was great rejoicing. Do you see what just happened right here in our midst? Their hearts have become soft. They hear the word of God read and taught and tears come down. And then they're actually commanded, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. This is a day of joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You see that? That is a soft heart. 
where God has them in his hands, where they are grieved what he's grieved about. And they are excited about what he's excited about, that God has them right there where their hearts are soft and malleable and not hard and bitter and coarse. Now, here's my question, right? What are they reading, right? Like, like, because like, I want this. Like, there are times when I read and I cry. Uh oh, I saw it. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right, Thomas. You get a pass, buddy. <laughs> like, what were they reading? He says the book of the book of Moses, the, the the book of the law, first five books of the Bible. You know what? I I don't know. Nehemiah is very vague. Like, what is it that they read that causes them sorrow and grief and sadness, but also gives them joy? I don't know, right? But here's what I do know. I do know that wherever you read the Bible, wherever you go and find it, you're going to hear the same notes, right? So I, 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 well, Simeon not here, but I think, and, and if you're a musician and I mess this up, tell me. But if I, if I remember correctly, right, you got an A on a piano. You got an A, a B, a C, a D, an E, and an F. Is there a G as well? All right, so that's, how many notes is that? I didn't count. Seven? You got seven notes, A, B, C, D, E, F, seven notes, right? So if you go to the low end of the piano, it's really low, like bass low. If you go to the high end of the piano, it's really high. But here's the thing, you're repeating the same notes. They might sound different, but a, a, a down here is the A up here. Am I right? Is that wrong? Is that correct? An A is an A. Like it might be a different octave. Is that the right word? Octave? All right. It's the... But an A is an A, right? It's an A. No matter where you read, on, no matter where you play it on a piano, it's the same note. Do you know that there are some core notes in the Bible that I don't care what book you read it from, you ought to be hearing the same thing. You ought to be hearing your God is a consuming fire. You ought to be hearing that our God is holy and dwells in inapproachable light. You ought to be hearing that our God has a standard of holiness that he demands for every single person that he makes, which is everyone. And you ought to hear this note that God made us in his image. You ought to hear this note that we can't measure up, that we can't do what God demands. And you ought to hear this note that God punishes disobedient people. He will exert his wrath and his vengeance, not because he's mean, but in the sense that he's holy and righteous and he does not like sin. And you ought to hear this note Time and time again, I don't care what book you go in, that God is also merciful, that he is gracious and kind and tender, and he loves his people. And you get these notes. I don't care if you're in Genesis. I don't care if you're in Exodus or Leviticus or Numbers or Deuteronomy or Ezra or Revelation. You're going to hear these same notes all over the Bible, that this is the character of God, and this is the compassion of God, and this is the inability of man, and this is God. God's provision all the time. Whether you're talking about God telling Satan, I will send a son born of a woman who will crush you. Or God who takes Abraham in after he lies about his wife in Egypt and still forgives him and Abraham bows down and worships. 
Or are you talking about the God who wipes away the whole face of the earth because the wickedness of mankind has grown so profusely and yet he saves one man and his family, Noah? Where do you want to go? How do you want it? All across the Bible, it's the same notes. Same notes. And therefore, what we see in this text, how they feel when they feel conviction and when they're crying after hearing the word of the law, they are grieved at their sin. They are cut to the heart over their sin. And it hurts them and tears are coming down. And then to hear the good news, the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's the other note that you got to play. And so here's the thing. When you read the Bible, when we read the Bible, we always have to hear both notes. We have to hear, I don't measure up. I never will. I'm a sinner. And we also have to hear and read the joy and provision of the Lord is my strength. And so if you're reading the Bible and all you see is how bad you are and how sinful you are, you are not reading the Bible correctly because the Bible says you might be that bad, but this is how good God is. And if the way that you read the Bible is always is health and wealth and my profit, you're not reading the Bible together. The Bible is there to cut you down as well. And so when you see them reading this sorrow and sadness and then this joy, that's how we read it. And that's how our hearts are softened to the things of the Lord. When we see we can't measure up and yet he's compassionate and gracious and kind. That's where they're starting to change, right there. You see the soft hearts? The last thing you see about evidence of change is this resolve to obey. There's one sentence that I think is really key, and it's, it's in verse 17. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. Now, you see what's happening? That after they hear the word of the Lord, they do something. It's in the seventh month, and in the seventh month, it's a high holy month. And so what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to go out and get these branches and build these temporary houses. And these temporary houses, they're to remind